You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Hello and welcome to Domecast. I'm Jordan Schrader of the News and Observer, hosting this week. And with me are Andy Spey of the in and Lauren Horsch, and Colin Campbell of the North Carolina Insider, and a special guest, Taylor Knopf of NC Health News. Uh, welcome uh, back to Domecast. You've been here. Uh, you've been here in the, uh, in the past, but it's been a while, right? Yeah, at least a year. All right. So um, NC Health News is celebrating its sixth birthday this week. Mm-hmm. And uh, tell us a little bit about what NC Health News does and uh, um, what, you're, what, you, what kinds of things you're working on there. So we are a nonprofit news source covering healthcare policy and all things healthcare across North Carolina. So yes, we are six years old today and we're celebrating that birthday tonight uh, with some lobbyists and some of our big donors uh, in downtown Raleigh. All right. All right, well, um, Taylor's going to talk about one of her recent stories about uh, foster kids. Uh, We're also going to talk about uh, Dan Forrest's and his uh, fundraiser uh, that came to light the other uh, day. Uh, We'll talk about two court rulings, one dealing with elections boards uh, and the other one on redistricting. Uh, This is the uh, special master uh, being appointed. And finally, we'll discuss whether the legislature is in session more often uh, this year or if it just seems like it. Um, But Taylor, let's start with you. So you wrote about um, the foster care system in North Carolina and uh, lawmakers having um, some questions and some concerns um, about what's going on. And obviously the number of people in foster care uh, has really, kids in foster care has really grown um, what's what's behind that, and, and what are the problems that, that we're seeing? Right. So the number of kids in foster care have gone up in the n- last few years, um, only by a couple hundred, actually. In 2013, there were uh, around 5,000. Now there, last year, there was like 5,700. So it's gone up slightly. Lawmakers are saying that it's due to the increased substance abuse issues across the state, particularly opioids, which I'm sure you've heard of on here before. Um, So the substance abuse numbers have actually increased. The number of kids going into foster care solely due to substance abuse issues on the parents' end uh, was at 31% in 2013. That's up to 38% last year. So there's been a slight increase, and lawmakers are looking at how to address the opioid crisis across all platforms, including foster care. So that's been one issue. And I think the, the legislature passed a bill this year, I believe, to deal with um, the child welfare system and um, some foster care issues. But So what's going on in the legislature um, related to this? What kind of questions and, and concerns do they have? Right. So they passed the Child and Family Services Performance Improvement Plan, um, which is part of their... Uh, efforts to improve foster care, as well as the bill that was passed, which was the Family Child Protection and Accountability Act. So those are two different things. The first is coming right out of DHHS. The second is coming out of the legislature, spearheaded by Senator Tamar Beringer. That's, that's And that's the one called Ryland's Law. It's named after... That um, was actually included in that plan. Okay. So there were two and then morphed into one. And basically, it requires 
lawmakers and other interested stakeholders to come together and form a plan to improve foster care and present that to the legislature in 2018. So they're on a fast timeline for that. Um, so that, that will be all fleshed out next year. Um, another issue that uh, a lot of lawmakers have had um, problems with is that DHHS, which is the state's Department of Health and Human Services, is behind in investigating child deaths within the foster care system. So they have a three-year backlog right now, and that's 96 deaths of children that they have to look into, and half of those are from three years ago. Um, the first administration, or the last administration, only had one person investigating these deaths. So they have bumped that up to five people investigating these full-time, and they added those within the last six months. So they think they're going to be able to get rid of this backlog with these extra people? Right. So Secretary Mandy Cohen of Health and Human Services has said her goal is to eliminate this backlog by July of next year. Um, so this just means typically they're supposed to go in within seven days of a child's death. And these, these deaths aren't just children that are actively in foster care, but children who have had contact with the Department of Social Services in their county within the last year. So it could just mean there was a report written up about the child, or they were actively in a foster care placement at the time. All right. Um, now, we should say, uh, since uh, we've got NC Health News with us, uh, we should definitely remind people uh, that open enrollment has begun uh, for, or is about to begin, I believe it's begun, right, for Obamacare. Yes. It started November 1st. And so what should people know about that? Well, it is a shortened period this year, so you only have until December 15th to sign up. Typically, it's run through January. So... People are welcome to come to the open enrollment events, which are happening all over the state, and you can find those um, on the NC Navigators page, or you can check out NC Health News. We've been writing about it a lot. Okay. Go to NC Health News. What's the URL for uh, NC Health News? So we are at NorthCarolinaHealthNews.org. Okay. Everybody should check it out uh, after going to NewsObserver.com, of course. Right. Uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, we read the stories in the Insider where we <laughs> routinely republish uh, NC Health News. Yes, a lot of these do run in the Insider, so subscribe to the Insider as well. Um, okay, well, Andy, uh, you wrote this week about uh, the lieutenant governor attending a fundraiser this summer. Um, this happened a few months ago. Uh, why are we writing about it uh, now, and, and what happened there that was uh, newsworthy? We wrote about it last week after receiving a photo, an anonymous photo. Well, we know who... who um, gave it to us and are keeping their uh, identity secret on their at, at you know their request um, but it came first we should give context first earlier that earlier last week it was reported that Harvey Weinstein who's everyone is probably familiar with now is accused of harassing the film producer accused of harassing lots of women uh, gave money to the human rights campaign the human rights campaign turned around and spent some of that money if not all of it uh, in North Carolina uh, to help Cooper and to uh, and or perhaps on attack ads on uh, former governor Pat McCrory uh, likely because he signed HB2 into law the the so-called bathroom bill uh, so that came out and Republicans pounced and said you know Cooper should call on uh, the human rights campaign to give that money back well he had no idea that he says he had no idea that the money went 
toward helping him, obviously, because the HRC is separate from the Cooper campaign. So uh, with that as a backdrop, this photo emerges of Dan Forrest at a campaign fundraiser in Forest City, aptly named, uh, how, uh, which is in or right outside Rutherfordton in Rutherford County in the western part of the state. And he is seen in the photo with a woman named Robin Webster. Robin Webster is a member of the Word of Faith Fellowship in Spindale, North Carolina. And that church has become sort of the focus of several investigations, um, one by the Associated Press, a couple by, um, I think at least one by the district attorney there, for uh, abusing some of its members, um, trying to, quote, beat the homosexual demons out of one person who is suing them, uh, among other things. And so they certainly have some questionable tactics, alleged questionable tactics, I I should say. Well, yeah, just to to give a little more uh, uh, context about Word of Faith. So um, they've been accused of a number of things. Um, Apparently 40-some people came forward to the AP and said that they had been beaten. Um, I guess they called the practice blasting, right? Um, and then there's also been allegations related to people from um, like foreign nationals that they brought into the country um, being asked to uh, work uh, without, is it without pay? Or they've been asked to work uh, at any rate uh, for these company, for the companies tied to the leaders of the church, right? That's correct. Um, and so there's two, two separate things there that you mentioned. That's exactly right. One, they believe in blasting, um, which I guess is where you um, would scream or demand or possibly physically you, you know, f- use some sort of physicality to, uh, <laughs> I guess, g- get demons out of somebody um, or rid someone of uh, their struggles or whatever. Um, and the other is, yes, they, they work with um, churches in Brazil and they're accused of sort of abusing those relationships and uh, forcing some of those immigrants into um, labor that it seems questionable. Okay. So uh, what was Webster doing at um, Forrest's fundraiser in, in Forest City? Well, we called some people who were there and who are familiar with the local politics there, and they say members of this church just show up at lots of uh, – political events, mostly Republican events, whether it's Jane Whaley, the founder of the church, her husband, Sam Whaley, uh, Miss Webster, or Miss Webster's husband, Frank Webster, who was an assistant DA locally. He, so he's also accused of derailing previous probes into uh, the, the church um, by coaching people on what to say when, uh, when, not, when officers come by to interview them about what happened and things like that. Obviously, he, he denies this, and I, I don't think criminal charges have ever been brought, but um, it's interesting to note. Okay. All right, and what did uh, Forrest's office have to say about uh, um, the fundraiser? Well, we, as you might imagine, have been criticized a little bit for publishing the photo of him standing next to Robin Webster, um, but it's important to note that we asked 
Dan Forrest and his campaign what their ties were if they're accepting money from Miss Webster or her husband or the church leadership. And they sort of dodged our questions. They said, how do we know what we, d- we don't know who, you know, comes to our events. We aren't sure who gave us money until we won't be sure until we produce our campaign finance report, which isn't due again until January. And so they did not necessarily, um, they, they didn't answer our questions directly. They sort of, sort of talked around it and said, we don't know who gives to us. We won't know. And they didn't come out and, you know, condone or condemn this church either way. They said, you know, that, that's what the legal system is for. Yes. Well, I think they said they don't condone the tactics of uh, that some of the church is accused of. Right. Yeah. Right. So, Okay. All right, Colin, uh, let's talk about special masters. So uh, a uh, guy by the name of Nathan Persilli, a Stanford professor, has been appointed to draw uh, the maps uh, that will decide uh, who gets elected to the General Assembly. So um, who is Nathan Persilli, and uh, why is he the one to, uh, to draw these maps? So yeah, so uh, Nathan Nathaniel Persilli. Nathan Persilli is uh, he's the uh, McClatchy Professor of Law at Stanford University, which is uh, I guess one of those endowed professorships. Uh, in, ironically enough, uh, named for uh, one of the uh, past leaders of the company for which we work, uh, that's actually based out in California. Uh, he has been at Stanford for some a few years. I think before that he was at Columbia, um, and he's kind of. To the extent that there's like someone who gets to be the special master a lot, this is the guy. Um, he's uh, redrawn districts in uh, Connecticut, in New York State, uh, all under uh, various court orders when there was some sort of challenge to uh, what the legislatures in those states had done. Uh, he's also a pretty widely quoted uh, legal expert on redistricting issues. So uh, chances are if you've read a lot of articles where uh, people with uh, PhDs talk about uh, sort of the nature of redistricting in America and have done all the studies. Odds are Priscilla was uh, quoted in those, uh, and that's actually been part of the objections that uh, Republicans have to appointing him. One, they're, they're concerned that a guy out in California is being solely put in charge of redrawing North Carolina's districts. They are arguing that's sort of anti-democratic, uh, but they also have issues with uh, what they perceive as, as conflict of interest because of some of the statements he's made uh, about, I think, a f- occasionally he's been asked about North Carolina dynamics particularly, but in general he's uh, discussed some of the challenges that come with uh, partisan uh, redistricting approaches, which, of course, North Carolina is a state that's uh, very well known for doing that. Um, so that sort of all uh, goes into this controversy over whether he's the right guy for this job or not. Uh, ultimately, the courts gave both parties to the lawsuit an opportunity to uh, come to an agreement on who they would like as a special master, and they couldn't come to an agreement, so it was completely up to the courts. The courts have uh, Priscilla, and uh, for his uh, labors, he's going to be paid, I think, $500 an hour, so not, not a bad gig if you can get it. Now, to back up a little bit, so the legislature drew these original maps in 2011. They got struck down uh, as racial gerrymanders, and then um, they redrew them, and last uh, this year, and um, now the court is saying that's not good enough, and we're not going to give you a third chance to draw them yourself. Um, what's the uh, problem with the new maps? Yeah, so the new maps, uh, I think one thing to stress uh, in, in all this is some people might see special master redrawing maps, and they think, oh, we're going to have like nonpartisan redistricting. He's just going to 
you know, carve up the whole state in a completely different way. That's not what's going to happen here, uh, because ultimately, once the legislature drew new maps to address the maps that had been thrown out, uh, the challenge uh, legally to the maps produced in August uh, centers on about nine different districts, most of them in the House, a couple in the Senate, um, where... Uh, the plaintiffs in the lawsuit argued that the racial uh, concentration is still a problem. They didn't really correct the racial gerrymandering or that they made changes to districts that weren't really needed uh, to satisfy the terms of the court order. Uh, so ultimately, uh, what Priscilla is charged with doing is just changing and making tweaks to those nine districts uh, to comply with uh, some of the court's concerns. Uh, and that will mean that Probably not just nine districts will change because they have to be equal population. Some of the districts surrounding those will be impacted, um, most notably ones in uh, Wake, Mecklenburg, and Guilford counties, I think, are some of the areas that have the most uh, of, of these districts that are going to need to be redrawn, um, and that could sort of change the uh, political calculus going into 2018 uh, in districts in those counties because if you pull people out of a Democratic-leaning district and put them in a Republican-leaning district, then you get you know more competitive districts across the board, and certainly that's something that Democrats are excited about as they, they look into uh, the next year. But yeah, it's, it's going to be a fairly uh, minor process of changes that uh, Priscilla is going to be doing. Uh, I believe the court order also says he needs to uh, try to focus on protecting incumbents, uh, which was also part of the criteria that the legislature used this year um, to make sure that uh, people don't get pushed out of office unless they absolutely have to be for uh, making the lines work. Um, and that was interesting because that was one of the issues that the challengers raised was that you shouldn't be protecting incumbents when these are incumbents elected in these unconstitutional districts. So I guess the judges basically said you can protect incumbents as long as you don't uh, you know, do anything, as long as you abide by the criteria uh, that you're supposed to abide yeah, by. Yeah, and that was something that came up in the redistricting process back in August, because one of these districts that uh, personally is going to be redrawing is a Senate district in the uh, Fayetteville and um, Hoke County areas, um, and that's held by Senator Ben Clark, who's a Democrat. Clark had asked uh, Republican leaders to do him a solid and uh, move his second home into his district in the way this is... Uh, was being redrawn. Uh, I'm not sure if he was actually planning to move to his second home or just wanted to have that option, uh, but the Republicans agreed to do that. Uh, and so that came up as an issue of, uh, you know, you're really going out of your way for the incumbents here if, if this guy's second home gets added by, you know, throwing in one more neighborhood into this, this particular Senate district. Um, so we'll see where uh, Senator Clark's house ends up by the time uh, personally is done with the districts. So what's next? Is there an appeal? And um, what's the timetable like to actually get these maps done? Yeah, so short term, uh, the uh, legislative Republicans, I think, said on Wednesday that um, they're looking at their legal options. Uh, so it could be that now that this order is out there, they may uh, want to appeal to the Supreme Court, which would be the next level up to uh, try to argue that uh, the court's order here is unconstitutional. Uh, the Supreme Court has already essentially handled the overall lawsuit here. Uh, before the new drop maps were drawn in August, the Supreme Court had declined to take up the case, uh, ordering the legislature to draw new maps and throwing out the maps that let the current legislature serves under. Uh, but the Supreme Court could say, you know, we don't agree with uh, this particular order or we're going to put it on hold and that could change things. Uh, but in terms of the uh, timeline laid out in the order that came out this week, uh, personally is going to have until uh, December the 1st to draw and submit these new maps with all the data that goes along with that. 
Uh, and then probably sometime in January, the court will hold a hearing uh, to hear any objections that either party in the lawsuit has to Persley's proposal, um, which would then be uh, finalized in time for the February candidate filing period for next year's election. Uh, again, all of that could get uh, changed if the Supreme Court were to issue any sort of injunctions or orders in this case. Um, but if they continue to not be interested in, in taking up uh, issues related to this case, then uh, the current court ruling will continue to stand. And uh, since it's a federal court, uh, none of these judges are going to be impacted by any of the uh, judicial changes that might be coming down the pipeline from the legislature. And how much time do we have? When do they actually go up for uh, re-election? So the filing period would be in February. I think the primary is scheduled to be in May of next year, and then November would be the uh, general election for legislature. Uh, so a lot of candidates already coming out of the woodwork in the districts that were um, agreed to in August. There's a couple open seats, so uh, we've seen fairly well um, well regarded, I guess, within their party candidates uh, pop up in some of the uh, districts as they've been newly drawn. So if things get majorly changed in some of these districts, that could impact you know who's running for what out of the people who have already launched their campaigns in the last couple months. Yeah, in a place like Wake County, it's hard to believe there won't be big changes since every little district change affects every other district in the area. Yeah, so. when you have to, and the rules in the court order are pretty clear about the level of population variation between the different districts, um, and so that's something where um, the courts are really going to have to uh, make sure they're uh, keeping things equal, and that ends up impacting a lot of different districts. Okay. Uh, well, in the other uh, election-related court decision this week, uh, we had a sort of a decision. Uh, we had a court saying how they would have ruled, which is a little unusual. But um, the state Supreme Court uh, was considering the case involving election boards, and uh, they asked the lower court, which had dismissed Cooper's lawsuit challenging the legislature's law revamping election boards. Uh, they had dismissed it. The Supreme Court asked them to... Uh, explain themselves and to say how they would have ruled um, if they had thought they had jurisdiction. Um, so what did they end up saying that they would have ruled? Yeah, so they, uh, the lower court basically said if it was up to us, even though it's not up to us at this point, uh, we would have said this law is constitutional, uh, that we don't think the change in the election board to make it um, you know, half Democrats, half Republicans is an infringement upon the governor's authority, that he doesn't have some constitutional right uh, to have a majority of uh, election board members be members of his political party. Um, so that, I, I guess, will sort of be taken under advisement by the Supreme Court as they take up the case uh, in the coming months. But uh, short term, this order doesn't really change anything. Um, there's currently uh, the elections and ethics agency are operating as a merged entity, uh, but there's no board governing governing them because Cooper has not been required to appoint people to the vacant board until this whole lawsuit is resolved. Uh, so in the meantime, uh, the staff there is doing what they can do legally. Um, and then a lot of the issues that would normally go to the elections board have been kicked up into the court system. And uh, as we go through the municipal elections in the next couple weeks, um, and if there's any challenges to some of the results in certain places, that's uh, the county elections boards will be able to sort of function with their old members if they have them, uh, and then any challenges that would normally go to the state board will, will go to the court. So uh, no real change there, just a, a sort of a, a hypothetical, we might have done this sort of thing from uh, the superior courts. Okay. And then real quick, uh, you wrote about one uh, last uh, set of uh, potential changes, which is the, the latest on the judicial 
uh, changes that are under consideration. Um, you wrote about how the Supreme Court um, might be affected if lawmakers change how judges are uh, elected or appointed. Um, so um, what's going on with the Supreme Court and are Republicans likely to be able to take control of the state Supreme Court anytime soon? Yeah, so I wanted to look at sort of the political calculus of this whole idea of electing every judge in the state every two years and what that would mean for uh, the partisan makeup of the state's highest courts. Uh, and as I looked at that, I realized that um, th there's a pretty strong incentive for Republicans to uh, jump on this idea because uh, the Supreme Court currently has a uh, Democratic Party majority by one vote since Mike Morgan won his Supreme Court race last year. Um, and the way the terms are staggered, uh, because they're all eight-year terms and they're not up in the same year, Republicans won't be able to have a shot at getting the majority back on the Supreme Court uh, under the current system until 2022. Uh, there are Supreme Court elections both next year and in 2020, uh, but both of those years only one seat is up and it's a seat held by a Republican. So uh, the best thing the Republicans could do is just keep the current status quo and not lose any more seats to Democrats. Granted, if you uh, elect everybody in uh, every two-year periods and start that next year, then uh, next year's election for Supreme Court is wide open. You could have any of a variety of uh, mixtures of the two parties on the court because all uh, seven seats on the court would be up for election. Uh, the Court of Appeals uh, is also uh, worth noting, although perhaps a little bit less impactful. The Republicans have a pretty solid majority on the uh, Court of Appeals. I think it's about 10 to 5 uh, in favor of Republicans uh, on that. Um, and Democrats would take a couple years uh, before they would be able to uh, in, in any sort of best case scenario for their party, get uh, back a majority on the Court of Appeals. Uh, of course, that's a, a gamble for Republicans with that court if they go with this two-year plan, because uh, then all of these uh, judges, including folks like Phil Berger Jr. And, and other Republicans who were elected to an eight-year term last year, would suddenly find their terms cut short, and uh, you'd have all 15 judges up for election, and uh, the court could swing uh, either direction, kind of depending on the, the political winds of, uh, of what next year's election may bring. So certainly a gamble there for Republicans, but if, uh, if the Supreme Court is your prize, then the two-year plan uh, would, would seem to be something that they would be excited about. Uh, Lauren, you wrote about uh, how long lawmakers are in session this year. It seems like they're always there. Uh, they've, this is, they've come back for, I think, their fourth time mm -hmm. now. We talked about that last week. Um, but um, actually, they haven't been in session uh, more days than they have in uh, a lot of other years, right? This is not abnormal. Yeah, so that's really the perception. You know, they're doing more lawmaking. They're in for longer periods of time, but really, they're still there for about the same amount of time when it comes down to that traditional long session, which is seen as usually January through June of the first year of the biennium. Um, so this year, actually, we had a pretty short long session, which was only 93 days. Uh, some other long sessions have gone for over 100. I mean, in total, a biennium can rack up, you know, anywhere from 139 days to 174. But recently, we've seen that trend of using extra sessions or reconvened sessions uh, to address certain issues. I mean, HB2 was, I do believe, a special session and we've had more of those this year with reconvened sessions to address redistricting and you know we're hearing constitutional amendments will also be taking up during a reconvened session um, so it's not unusual to have you know 162 legislative days throughout an entire biennium but we do look to the 2015 and 16 biennium and that was the last time lawmakers were in and that 
did go really long. And for, you know, listeners out there, you'll probably remember that was the long session that went into September and then saw, you know, five extra sessions that year. And that did end up racking up 185 legislative days in the House and 190 in the Senate. Um, so that's where we do see the big difference is if the long session goes longer, we will get more legislative days. But these short sessions are only one or two days. Some have gone longer, five or six. But, I mean, they're just in for quick hits to get business done and, you know, it doesn't add up too much. And after the long session in 2015, they were just gone for the rest of the year, right? They they wasn't uh, they weren't just going uh, coming back and forth, so so you kind of get a little more certainty. Whereas here, we've yeah. we've seen them um, kind of announce it of short notice. Well, that and, and that's back. and that's kind of the difference between these reconvene sessions. That's kind of when the lawmakers know they're going to come back for this day instead of just, you know, adjourning the long session to come back in May. They're adjourning the long session until October or November or January, as it's going to turn out next year. Um, the extra sessions are used when, you know, the lawmakers can call themselves back in with three-fifths or a governor, you know, issues, issues a proclamation like we had with um, Governor Cooper earlier this year and Governor McCrory last year. Um, and, you know, this isn't the first time we've seen, it, seen that happen. I mean, in, in the 2011-12 biennium, they ended up using reconvened sessions a lot because they didn't have that three-fifths majority, the supermajority, to call themselves back in. And they weren't sure if the governor at that time would call them in to address redistricting, of all things. Um, so, you know, that's just a political move to make sure that they can come back in and address any issues they have. Um, so we're seeing that this year, another redistricting year. So, yeah. Redistricting and it's divided power again. So yeah. um, I assume that's a, a big part of why we're seeing them a lot is because mm -hmm. of the um, vetoes and other yep. reasons that they want to come back to deal with um, what the Democratic governor is doing. Um, you also wrote in that same story that uh, they're passing less legislation. So um, fewer bills and um, there's fewer bills filed. Is there also fewer laws being passed? Yeah, uh, there are fewer laws being passed. And again, that um, I talked with uh, Jerry Cohen, who if you're around the General Assembly, you kind of know him as the General Assembly historian because he's been hanging around the General Assembly since the 70s. And he was the director of um, bill drafting for a long time. And so he saw, you know, in 1995, um, for a short period of time, there was a rule put in place that lawmakers could only file a certain number of bills. So there was a drop off then as well. But again, um, when Republicans came into power uh, during the 2011-12 biennium, we also saw that. Um, you know, that number of bills dropped off because they brought back that rule where you could only have so many bills filed per lawmaker. And he saw that, you know, lawmakers were being more thoughtful in what laws they would or what bills they would introduce that way, you know, they could have a better chance of getting them passed. Uh, so you are seeing less bills, you know, being signed into law either by the governor or local bills that are just getting passed by both chambers. Um, and you know, that could just because, be because, you know, they like the Republicans who are in power like what's happening right now. So they want to keep the status quo. They don't see a lot that they need to change yet. And, you know, that could change in the future. We could see more laws being passed. Um, but right now it's holding steady. Okay. All right. Well, we will be right back with Headliner of the Week. Please stay with us. Hi, I found a toy dinosaur over on the playground by Smith Street. Uh, it had this phone number on it, and, well, I just wanted to make sure the dinosaur made it back to its little owner. When I found the little sippy cup, I just had to give you a call. It's for a kid, you know? 
I know my son gets super attached to the smallest things, even a fire truck, and I'd be happy to drop it off. We'd do anything for kids, yet one in six children in the U.S. struggle with hunger. Help end childhood hunger near you. Learn how at feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. And welcome back to Domecast. And now it's time for everyone's favorite segment, Headliner of the Week, where we decide uh, who is the most important or influential person, place, or thing in this week's news. Um, Taylor Knopf, you're our guest. Why don't you go first? Uh, who's your Headliner of the Week? Okay, I'm going to nominate President Barack Obama because he's kind of popped back up in the news this week because of the open enrollment for the Affordable Care Act. Uh, President Trump's administration has cut funding for ads by 90% this year, so President Obama is back and he's advertising it himself. All right. Former President Barack Obama in the hat for Headliner of the Week. I don't know when the last time he was Headliner of the Week, but it's been a while, so... Uh, Andy Spay, who's your headliner of the week? I'm going to go with uh, the Raleigh's mayoral candidates, uh, Nancy McFarland and Charles Francis. Uh, Henry Gargan, our Raleigh reporter, conducted very important interviews this week uh, that are uh, on video and on our website, newsobserver.com, right now, uh, where he asks them important questions like, uh, is a hot dog a sandwich, and do you prefer Bojangles or Cookout? And I, they agree on food, at the very least. They may not agree on much else, but McFarland and Francis both say they prefer Bojangles, and they both say that a hot dog is not a sandwich. So take that, Adam Gold. Yeah. Those are fo- <laughs> highly focused group dancers, don't you think? Uh, yeah. yeah right. Well, it's just good to see some agreement between those two, because this has been kind of a bitter uh, runoff uh, election period. <laughs> it is. Uh, they were definitely thrown off. You'll have to see their facial, uh, their reactions on those videos that um, uh, Robert Willett got for us at the NNO. All right. All right. Uh, Mayor Nancy McFarlane and her challenger, Charles Francis, in the hat for headliner of the week. Uh, Lauren Horsch, who's your headliner? So my headliner is a book, and the book is specifically Gucci Mane's autobiography. Now, I am not hip, so I cannot say that I actively listen to Gucci Mane. Um, but I know who Gucci Mane is. My boyfriend does listen to his music, so I know a little bit about it. But why I'm picking Gucci Mane's autobiography is because Vox uh, published a map of the 50 most read books in, uh, in the nation. So it was one book per state. Um, and Gucci Mane's autobiography was North Carolina's most read book. But there's a caveat with that. It was between Scribd users, so it's just like a specific website where you can download ebooks and read them and it was between august 1st and 18th of this year so while it's kind of just a funny little thing take it with a grain of salt uh and is there any tie to north carolina here i don't know anything about gucci Mane. do you know uh i know probably as much as you do (laughs) so (laughs) all right so we don't know why people are reading gucci Mane's autobiography but there's high interest here uh, okay, Gucci Mane's autobiography. Is it just called Gucci Mane, or is it called does Life it have and a Times name? or something? Maybe. So it's a no. I I think it's just um, autobiography. Um, I know it's a New York Times bestseller because that's what the Wikipedia page tells me. <laughs> um, but no, I think it's just like uh, Gucci Mane autobiography or something like that. Okay. Nothing like funny. Or Self-titled anything. album. Yeah. Uh, okay. All right. So Gucci Mane's autobiography. Uh, is in the hat for headliner of the week. That one is definitely a first. 
Um, so, Colin Campbell, you're last up. Who's your All headliner right. of the week? I don't know if we can top Gucci Mane, but it can certainly uh, come close. Uh, I'm going with a candidate uh, for the town council of Curry Beach down on the coast, uh, located on uh, the uh, area known as Pleasure Island. His name is Jerry Dockery. And uh, he is uh, a former uh, dominant sexual master, was his past lifestyle. Uh, he's apparently authored uh, what's been described by uh, reports in the Internet and in the Wilmington Star News as graphic blogs that have usernames like Loving Master 45 and Master Jerry. Uh, it features different interactions with a teenage girl who he claims to have been training and was looking for a daddy. Um, various other sorts of BDSM lifestyles described here on this man's blog. Uh, apparently running because he thinks that dogs should be allowed on the beach, and that's his primary platform. He notes that he's uh, no longer uh, working as a dominant sexual master, that he, at 72, believes that he is too old and has quit that lifestyle. So uh, for being perhaps the most interesting municipal election candidate on the ballot in North Carolina next week, uh, Jerry Dockery, the uh Dominant sexual master from Pleasure Island's uh, town of Curry Beach. Yeah, I think BDSM uh, masters have a mandatory retirement age of seventy-two, right? <laughs> yeah, it's in law. You know, I it's think. not that different from a special master that we were talking about earlier. Lots of masters. Yeah, yeah. been busy week in the master world here. Yeah, don't get them. Don't get them mixed up though. Yeah, yeah. Do the we... uh, dominant sexual master not redrawing district lines just in case yeah. there's any confusion. Do we know what his opinions are on leash laws? Does his, does his personal life um, sleep into his political views at all? It's worth asking, given that I think one of the stories indicated that he'd been spotted on the uh, streets of Wilmington with a woman on a leash at one point. So, yeah. Okay. All right. Well, we'll uh, check back in after the election and, and see how see Master, how Master Jerry, Jerry did uh, <laughs> in the... Uh, in the Curry Beach election. Props to Colin for doing that with a straight face. I can't believe you sort made of it. I had to use my serious voice. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, Master Jerry. What's his actual name? Jerry Dockery. Jerry Dockery uh, in the hat for headliner of the week. Uh, that is a tough one to... Um, uh, I, there, I have several words there I was going to use that I probably, you know... Top, won't even get into so that's that's a tough one to exceed uh let's see but i'm gonna go with uh president barack obama so uh taylor uh our special guest wins this one uh and obama uh, dominates dominant sexual master <laughs> in headline of the week <laughs> no one tweet that out please. yeah yeah <laughs> i think we'll leave that there okay uh <laughs> for taylor knopf and andy spay and Lauren Horsch and Colin Campbell. I am Jordan Schrader signing off for this week. Uh, we'll uh, be back with a um, more wholesome Domecast next week. You've been listening to the Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.